0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. I'm Rob Dalrymple. I'm the pastor here at Northminster. It's nice to see you all this morning. As fall is coming, it, it, it is, it, 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 it will be, soon. Truth it was 57 and raining in Pittsburgh yesterday, I don't know if that helps. Um, this morning we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to read one of the most challenging passages, uh, and difficult to understand passages in Scripture, and see what Jesus has for us to, 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 to take, and what does it mean to be a disciple, and what does it look like here, so... I want to uh, encourage you to take your bulletins out if you got one. Open them up to the front page as I remind you again. Hopefully it's again, but for some of you it's your first time uh, in a while. That we want to encourage everybody in our congregation, everybody who attends, to have at least two connection points with God's people. One connection point should be a weekly gathering of worship like this. A, a corporate worship, a time of fellowship, community, worship, teaching, instruction, serving, etc., but a second uh, connection point would be a small group, or a Bible study, or a life group. And so we've listed for you here a number of them. We couldn't fit them all in there. choir is there, and there's a choir thing on Saturday next week if you want to get involved with that. Uh, and there are other groups that we couldn't fit here. But if you're interested in any of these groups, uh, you've got two options. One is to go to the fellowship hall after service and fill out one of the sheets and sign your name up, and we'll get in touch with you and get the contact info there. Second option is to pull out one of these connect cards in front of you. And if this is your first time here, we, we'd love you to do it anyways. Fill this out. Let us know who you are. And then fill this out and say, hey, I'm interested in this. One of the things on there, it says um, on the next page, page 3, or the inside, uh, right hand page, more classes, more things going on in the next week as well. And there's a men's retreat coming up in October. Uh, if you're interested in that, just fill out a Connect card. It says, see Rob Voiles, but he's not even here. He's over there making lunch right now. So if you don't know who he is, that ain't going to help. Fill out a Connect card. Uh, And let us know that you're interested and we'll get you connected with that as well. A third option, a third connection point would be a mentoring relationship. Uh, And we really strongly believe that everybody should be in a mentoring relationship. If you're young or new to the faith or not sure about what's going on, you should be mentoring, being mentored by somebody else. If you've been around for a while and you know who you are, uh, uh, you should maybe be in a a peer-to-peer mentoring relationship. Uh, Or you should be at least mentoring somebody else. So we want to encourage you to do that, and if you want to be in a mentoring relationship, you can sign up uh, uh, over in the uh, fellowship hall in a little bit as well. If you have your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Uh, I believe it's about page 740 or somewhere around there in your pew Bibles. I didn't look it up in advance, I'm sorry. As we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke, chapter 16, verse 1. In chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees, who are the religious leadership, and you have to understand the Pharisees, they are uh, religiously uh, strong, um, zealous, um, but they're the protectors of the faith. They they felt it was their responsibility to help the people know what right and what wrong was. So they kind of made the rules. You know, the rules of church are, you know, to enter you must dress this way, walk this way, eat this. That's kind of the Pharisees. Uh, this is right, this is wrong, we do it this way, and, and they thought they were doing right by doing this. You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not work, so it was their job to help the people know what work meant. That's work, and you're breaking the law, we're the experts in the law, we want to help so we want to help you with this. A result of this, however, was an arrogance. Now you have to also understand that it's an honor and shame culture. And your goal is to gain honor. And so the Pharisees, because they were the religious leadership, when they walked down the aisle, you know, everyone stood up. And everyone greeted them in the marketplaces because they were honorable people. And they thought that the honor was just. It was due. And it's because I'm so righteous. I'm such a godly person. You should be giving me honor. Well, the problem with that became this. It became, well, you guys don't follow the rules well enough, you're out. You're out, and so they had these well-defined rules of who's in and who's out. And certainly, this Jesus guy—he don't understand the rules too well because he's eating with the wrong folk. He's eating with tax collectors who work for Rome. He's eating with sinners, those who have no regard for the law at all. So Luke 15 begins with the Pharisees uh, grumbling, "Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners?" You're eating with the wrong people, Jesus. They don't bring you honor, they bring you shame, you shouldn't be eating with them. Jesus, understand the way it works. And so Jesus tells three parables. And we looked at these last week. And the three parables basically answer the question: why am I eating with tax collectors and sinners? And his answer is, I had to. I I I had. They were lost, and now they're found. A parable of these two brothers, this one brother goes wayward and and he came home. Your brother was lost and I had to eat with them. But note then that the three parables in Luke 15 were all addressed to the Pharisees. Now note the verses I put up here on the screen for just a moment. Luke 16 verse 1, Jesus told his disciples. Verses 14 and 15, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus and he said to them... Chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, verses 5 and 6, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. See, what's happening is, is, Luke provides us no transitions between what happened in chapter 15 and what happened in chapter 16, other than in 15 he's talking to the Pharisees and in 16.1 it, he turns and told his disciples. And then in verses 14 and 15, then the Pharisees who were standing there, he went and told them this. And then in 171, and then he told his disciples. The scene is the same. All these people seem to be present, and Jesus is turning from this crowd to this crowd, back to that crowd, back to this crowd. And so in order to understand, well, what's going on, we have to note these little transitions here. How he's speaking to one group, and now he's speaking to another group. Now another thing that's going to help us out here is this. Is that the parables include a contrast between the people of this world and the people of God. Okay, and let me see if I can explain very briefly here, because the next parable is going to be fun. Alright. The people, we're all people of this world. We all live in this world. All right, but those who follow Jesus, those who have begun to become disciples of Jesus, meaning someone who follows him, Jesus says, you're now members of the kingdom of God. All right, and the members of the kingdom of God are to live distinctly from the members of this, of this world. The world, really easily, the world does it by power. The world does it by money. They do it by force, by military might, uh, by oppression. In God's kingdom, it's done by justice, by love, by mercy, by humility. The, the people of this world are trying to seek betterment in this life. The people in God's kingdom are seeking betterment in the kingdom of God. Which both includes this life and the life to come. So this is a contrast between these two groups. Okay. Now let's open up. Oh, let me give you one other background here that will help us understand this parable. Uh, Luke 6, 35. Jesus said, love your enemies, and do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back, and then your reward will be great, and you'll become children of the Most High. Now, this is going to help us understand the parable that we're about to read. When Jesus said this, it would have made no sense to anyone. When he says, lend without expecting anything in return, the answer would have been, why would I do that? Because in their culture, it was about debt and obligation. I give to you because you now owe me and you're in my debt. And until you pay me back, you owe me and you will serve me and remember who I am. You do things in order to gain more honor in society and more status. And everybody that you did it for now owes you. Jesus is coming along saying, in the kingdom of God, it doesn't work that way. In the kingdom of this world, you do things to get better off in this life, but not in my kingdom. Give, without well, expecting anything in return. So Luke chapter 16, uh, now, is going to be a parable. And I'm going to give you a, 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 a clue, and that's this. I uh, taught seminary courses for a number of years, and I would teach a course on how to interpret the Bible. Okay? I loved loved, uh, how to to, to interpret the Bible, and we look at how to interpret prophecy, and how do you interpret parables, and how do you understand the letters of Paul. And and so we we spend, you know, each week we're looking at a different part of the scriptures, and how does it work, how do we understand it, and what are the principles? Well, I would always start the very first class with this parable, because it's so difficult. Okay? It's not going to make any sense to you. All right? Not the beginning of a little bit. Uh, and, there's, and, and, there's a re- and one of the things I wanted to get across to the students was the Bible is not always easy to understand. Unless we understand the worldview of what's going on and the culture and the context, it won't, it won't always be easy. But this parable is important because Jesus has a really important message for us. So let's kind of work our way through this if we can. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, notice speaking to the disciples, there was a rich man... Whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called the manager in and he asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, Uh-oh, what am I going to do? My master's taking away my job and I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. Verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Verse 5. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first debtor, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, You know what? Take your bill. Sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. You know, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or the Greek says God and mammon. Now, this is, the, the context is this. A man uh, is, is very wealthy. This, this, the, the owner this master is extremely wealthy. And the reality is, is he cannot keep control of all of his business dealings. So often in this culture, someone might even sell themselves to the master. Say, hey, look, here's some money. I'm going to be your general manager. That's what we would call it. This guy's a manager. We might call it like a GM. I'm going to oversee all your business dealings. I'll run your businesses for you. That way you can enjoy the spoils of all your business. Okay. So this guy is maybe what we might even call a slave, but he, he sold himself into this position. Mind you now, the general manager for a very wealthy person makes you very honorable, Right? When I walk around town, I represent my master and, I, and he's somebody, so I'm somebody too. The problem was, was this manager was pilfering from the owner. He had been stealing, he had been, you know, not giving them, you know, not keeping the books properly and, and kind of pocketing a little bit of it and the owner finds out. And the owner says, you know what, dude, you're fired. I give you two weeks and you're out. So the the, the guy says, I don't know what I'm going to do. Verse 4, right? Uh, uh, when I lose my job here, what am I going to do? I, I, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig, meaning I don't want to take a manual labor job. I, I don't want to be a daily worker. I don't want to go out in the marketplace and say, hey, hey I'll pick cotton in your fields today. Uh, I not. I don't want to do that. I, 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 my body's not strong enough. But I'm ashamed to beg. Because it's either a day laborer job, or I beg, but that's shameful. I mean, I'm a pretty honorable guy right now as a GM for this owner, what am I going to do? I know what I'll do. Verse 5. He calls in each of his master's debtors. And he said, okay, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil. Okay. Now, mind you, this is a considerable olive grove. This, guy, this is not some small-time farm. This is a massive olive grove. This is a lot of olive oil that he owes. He says, you know what, make it 450 and we're done. Now, as the general manager, he actually has the authority to do this. He's handling the master's business, and he's like, "I know you can't pay the thousand right now, so or the nine hundred right now. Here's what I'm going to have you do: pay four fifty, we'll call it a deal." He goes the next guy and says, "How much do you owe? I I owe you know a a, a thousand bushels of wheat, Uh, a a hundred measures in the Greek. Right? Uh, This is twenty times larger than the average farm. This is a large, large piece of property. Well, I'll tell you what. You see, I I know you can pay." I'll make it eight hundred for you. Okay, no problem. And the guy quickly writes eight hundred because he, he's saving two hundred. He's not well. You know that guy got fifty percent off. You know, no, no. no I, I'll make it two hundred. I'll make it eight hundred. We're good. What the guy did, the master then comes along, and this is where the parable becomes difficult. Right, verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted truly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcome to new eternal dwellings. And, and this is where we got confused, because we were kind of following along all along, right? But right here, we're like, whoa! Because, see, typically, in these parables of Jesus, and parables are stories that Jesus tells. They're not true stories. They're just hypothetical stories. They fit in the culture and the context of that world, and they're stories that people would, okay, I can see that happening. But in the stories, the master is often God. So how could God commend this liar, this cheat, this con man? It doesn't seem to make sense. But notice what actually happens here. First off, the master is commending him not because of his dishonesty. And note, by the way, Luke notes he's a dishonest manager. The guy's not being commended as a good guy. He's being commended because that was, ex- that was good. Nice, nice move there. I like what you did. I, uh, now, I don't like what you did as far as my, concern, my, my financial affairs are concerned, but you know what? You're brilliant. Because what the guy did was he ensured that he would have a home to go to when he got fired, and then he would have an employer to go to when he got fired. Because, hey, dude, remember how you, know, you owe my guy $900 and I, only, and I charge you 450 I need a place to stay tonight. Hey, you know how you owe my master 1000 I only charge you 800 I need a job. It's a debt and obligation system. And I cut you a deal, you cut me a deal. I'm not going to go work. I, I'm not strong enough to work. And I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I'll make sure that when I get fired, these guys will take care of me because they're going to owe me. The master is commending the shrewdness. Not the injustice. Not the dishonesty. Jesus turns around and says, here's the reality. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. Maybe translate that as the people of God. They act shrewdly in order to get themselves something in this life. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do the same thing, but I want you to do it for those who can't pay you back. I want you to use the money and the wealth and the power and the prestige and the honor. I want you to use all those things that you have and do it the way they did it, except they did it for themselves. Do it for the Lord. Do it for those who can't pay you back so that when 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 the end comes, they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. Note the end of of verse 9. Use worldly wealth to gain friends so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Meaning, use it to gain friends who can't pay you back now because they're too poor. Because those friends will welcome you into eternal dwellings. The very thing our culture set up, Jesus says, to do, it is to benefit and bless those who already have. And those who don't are left out. I want you to care for them. Knowing that it ain't going to get you anything economically now. It ain't going to get you prestige. It ain't going to get you power. Might not get you promotion. Might not bring you income. But I want church, I want you to do it because then I'm going to welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, the, the fill in the blank then says we should use our money to cancel the debts of the poor and to gain their friendship. We should use our money or our power or whatever it might be. It doesn't have to just be money. By the way, the word mammon means more than just money. Uh, It means to cancel the debts of the poor and to gain their friendships. The result is they will not receive us into their homes because they can't. They may not even have a home. But we will will be welcome into eternal dwellings. Now, while he's speaking that, the Pharisees who were standing right there in verse 14, who love money, heard all this. Note carefully, the Pharisees heard all this. And they were sneering at Jesus. They said, And he said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The Pharisees who love money, they were sneering at Jesus. See, in an honor and shame culture, what they're doing is they're mocking him. They're ridiculing him. They're making fun of him. And what they've done is they've shamed Jesus. And the idea of, of publicly shaming somebody is, Well, who wants to join his side now? We're honorable. He's not. We just made fun of him. You want to be on his team? Because that's, like, shameful. And Jesus turns to them and says, you like to justify yourselves in the eyes of others. You're concerned about your honor. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly, honor, prestige, jobs, right, security, God says is detestable. Now, verse 19, he turns to the Pharisees and tells them, and by the way, there's no transition, he's still talking to the Pharisees. There was a rich man, dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, this passage is interesting. Some actually debate whether this is actually a parable or not. And the reason for debating whether it's a parable or not is because Jesus never names people in his parables. If this is a parable, and I think it is, it's the only time he names someone. The rich man and Lazarus. And note the contrast between the two. The rich man was well clothed. He he had purple garments and fine linen and the white underneath garments was a sign of the highest wealth. Lazarus Lazarus was dressed with sores. The rich man uh, uh, has a a daily banquet. The the ESV translation says he feasted sumptuously every day. So when it says he lived in luxury, he he had a great meal every day. Even the wealthy in that world can't have a banquet every day. But this guy's so wealthy, he has a banquet every day. Lazarus, he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The rich man has a home that's obviously extremely opulent. He's got a gate, suggesting it's an estate. Lazarus has no home. He's laid at the gate suggesting that maybe he's even a cripple. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now, to understand what's happening here is, uh, there's a, a, a common Jewish conception uh, that upon death, the righteous and the unrighteous both went to the same place called Hades, right? And there's a reason for that, but we won't get into the details. But that place was separated uh, from the good side and the bad side by a chasm, a, a pit, a, a bottomless pit. Uh, on one side is what we might call hell, Uh, The the rich man seems to be suffering and maybe torment there. But on the good side was paradise, Abraham's bosom. Uh, It's a dinner table, it's a banquet. And what's happened now is the roles have been reversed. The rich man who was eating a fine banquet every day is now in torment. And Lazarus who had sores that even the dogs licked is now at the banquet table. But notice the rich man hasn't recognized the distinctions. Uh, Hey, um, you know, Lazarus is still here to serve me, right? Send him over here, Abraham, so he can dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. Lazarus, come here. Come here, boy. He hasn't learned. Abraham replies, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received his bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that anyone who wants to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Uh, The rich man answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Uh, Lazarus, come here, come here, cool me off. No, okay, Lazarus, go to my brothers. I'm this powerful, rich, wealthy, and you're here to serve me. Verse uh, verse twenty-nine. Abraham replied, "Sorry, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them." No, father Abraham, he said. But if someone goes from them to the from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, "If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead." The rich man pleads, "Send him over there, my brothers." For the first time, by the way, he seems to be thinking of someone other than himself. The answer is no. They have Moses and the prophets. Now, now the reference to Moses and the prophets is a common Jewish way of referring to what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the books from Genesis through Malachi, uh, end about 400 years or so, keeping it simple for this morning, before the time of Jesus. So the Old Testament spans a couple thousand years of history prior to the time of Jesus. And then you have Jesus' life, and the books that tell us about Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, begin what we call the New Testament. But the New Testament hasn't been written yet. Jesus is still walking around. There are no Gospels. There are no books of Paul. There's only the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was commonly divided between the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and the rest, often referred to as the prophets. So they got the Scriptures. They got the Old Testament. No, no. They won't believe, even if someone rises from the dead, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets. Now look at chapter 17. So Jesus turns to his disciples now. Verse one the things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. He's referring to the Pharisees, isn't he? It would be better for them to have been thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times they come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Verses 1 and 2 of this passage draws out the story of of Lazarus and the story of why am I eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the answer is, I have to eat with them, and woe to those of you who stop them from coming to me. We think of little ones, we think of the children, but little ones are anyone who follows Jesus. Which are the tax collectors and the sinners. By the way, it's also a man named Zacchaeus, who was a wealthy tax collector. A man named Matthew, who probably was a pretty wealthy tax collector as well. And we know of Joseph of Arimathea, who helped bury Jesus, who was a wealthy leader, probably of the Pharisees. And a man named Nicodemus. They're all the little ones. But so are these tax collectors and sinners, and you Pharisees won't let them come to me. It'd be better for you to have been thrown in the sea with a millstone around your neck than for you to stop them. Then he turns to his disciples and says, you know what, here's the reality. If you you know, the parable of the, of the lost brother, the, this one brother got the inheritance and he went off and squandered it all the and then he came back and, and I, the dad, forgave him. Don't be the older brother. If your brother comes back and repents, forgive him. Seven times in a day, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. This is one of the few times, I think, by the way, in the Gospels, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at all, you might note that the disciples very rarely seem to understand anything. They don't get it. Um, you know, maybe one of the good moments is Peter saying, Hey, Jesus, call me out of the boat so I can walk on the water too. And Peter starts walking on the water for like one step. And then he saw the wind and was afraid and began to sink. Now, that's like Peter's like, greatest moment in the Gospels. right? Most of the time, uh, what does rising from the dead mean? I don't know. You ask, Hey, Jesus, what did that parable mean? I don't get it. Hey, Jesus, we can call fire down from heaven and destroy these. No, no. Right? They don't understand. They don't get it. They're, 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 they're following him and they're trying And their their hearts are right. But they finally get it. Lord, Jesus, to do what you just asked us to do, we need more faith. We can't do that, Jesus, without you increasing our faith. Jesus' answer is, look, all you need is a faith like a mustard seed. It's, it's, It's a tiny little seed. And then you can uproot a mulberry tree. Mulberry trees have really deep, deep, deep roots. You can uproot a mulberry tree, and it will obey you. What does this mean for us today? Well, number one, let's go to the last point first. If your brother or sister repents, forgive them. Or I should say him or her. Sorry about that. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One, because that's what God did for us. Matthew chapter 6, at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, it says... If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We're forgiven people. So what do forgiven people do? Forgive. Now, let's understand this in this context. The passage is first off assuming genuine repentance. Repentance. It's assuming that they've sinned and they've come and they're genuinely repentant. The number seven is just a number for completion or perfection. It's not this exaggerative that they just keep sinning and, and I'm sorry and they do it again. I'm sorry and they do it. It's, it's, it doesn't matter how many times they've sinned. If they repent, forgive them. Don't take the number literally here. But it also doesn't mean that you know, if you're in a situation where you're being abused, well I I just have to keep forgiving because they said they're sorry. No, 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 no. A person who continues to abuse somebody else isn't really sorry. They might be, but not sorry enough to stop. They need help. And the one thing that you should not do is put yourself back in harm's way. That's not helping them. What they need is help. You need to go find them help. And maybe that means you can forgive, but you need to remove yourself from that situation. Second point, you want money, power, or wealth? fill in the blank says it's probably not a good idea. If we read these stories well, the pursuit of money, power, and wealth, as the passage that we read earlier in the Scripture, leads to all kinds of evil. The reason, the question with this passage is this. Why do we want money, power, and wealth? If we want it for our own advantage, then it shows a lack of trust in God that God's going to provide. If we wanted to bless others, then God will grant it. The whole point of it is, if you've been faithful with a little, you're going to be entrusted with much. But if you've not been faithful with what you've been given, then He will not entrust you with anything. And the context of being faithful or not is, what am I using what I have for? To get myself ahead in this world. To get myself security. To get myself, my family, whatever it might be whatever the things we need, or am I willing to surrender them for the sake of God's kingdom? If we surrender all that he's given us for the sake of our kingdom, guess what? He'll probably give you more, because you're faithful with it. He's simply not, he knows. It's not good for us otherwise. We mentioned a number of weeks ago that the Gospel of Luke began focusing this latter portion of Jesus' life as we enter the last 10, 12, 13 chapters of the Gospel of Luke We're probably in the last six to nine months of Jesus' life. He's traveling to Jerusalem, and he's going to Jerusalem to die. And he's explaining to his disciples, this is what we're going to Jerusalem for. They think it's to become the king. And he's like, well, yeah, that's kind of what it's about, but it's not going to be what you think. It's not going to be on a throne with you guys sitting next to me, glittering gold and power, and us saying, away with them. It's going to be like this. I'll have a crown on my head. There'll be a sign above my head that says, King of the Jews, but it'll be like this. And if you want to be my disciple, take your crosses and let's go. Sacrifice all that we have and follow me. I think it's interesting that this story, these parables follow the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Because the parable of the prodigal son in many ways, really is a really good illustration of God's love for us unconditionally. It doesn't matter who we are, what we've come from, what our backgrounds is. If we squander everything away and we come back, Father, I have sinned, he will run out to beat us. And oftentimes in evangelicalism and in Christianity, we stop with that story. And and the message is, God will welcome you home no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. No one's worthy to be at the table, but we've all become worthy because the Father loves us so much if you simply come home. And that's a great message. But if we just simply keep reading, we begin to realize it's not about just coming home. Because Jesus doesn't there's no, there's no transitions other than now he turns to his disciples. And he says, Look, now the question is what are you doing with your possessions? Your money, your power, your wealth, your education, whatever it might, your influence, whatever it might be. The question is are we using our money, power, and wealth to get ahead in this world, or are we using them to further the kingdom of God? Are we using them to get ahead in this world, provide security, comfort for ourselves? Or are using them to further the kingdom of God. Now, I'm really glad that the offering has already been taken. Because sometimes it begins, one, one of those things, you know, you have a sermon like this and you kind of, I feel guilty, all right, I'll put some more in. God knows our hearts. And it's not about putting more in. It's about our hearts. So I want to challenge you this week. I want to challenge you to go home and sit on this. And contemplate, what am I doing? If it's a family, what are we doing? With the things that God has given to us. Knowing that if we're faithful with what he's given to us, he will lavish immensely upon us then. But the things now aren't important. If we're using them to get ahead in this world, that's not what he gave them to us for. In the Jewish world, and I think in the biblical world, that Jesus is is focusing on, the the conviction is is that everything we have is actually God's. Everything is His. He might have entrusted us with the care or stewardship of it, but it's all His. So Jesus says, if He's entrusted you with a little and you're faithful with it, then He's going to give you much. But if you're faithful, if you're not faithful with it, He's not. So we think that as long as we came home as that son, that wayward son or daughter, and said, Father, and he runs it, he's going to throw us a banquet, and all of a sudden we find and in. He's like, no, no, no. I'm bringing you into my household, and I'm entrusting you with all that I have. And if you're not faithful with it, I'm sorry. The table's not for you. The rich man is not at the table. Lazarus is. So make a budget. Maybe spend the next 30 days. Calculate your spending. To do so is a perfect indication of where our values are. Whether it's our budget of our finances, or a budget with our time, or a budget with our influence, or whatever it might be. Calculate it. Because he who is faithful with a little will be trusted with much. If you've been dishonest with a little, you'll be dishonest with much. One more thing. Jesus says, in the, in, in, the, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Father, send, uh, Abraham, send Lazarus to, to my brothers. I, I, I got, they, they've got to no. know. No, sorry, they've got Moses. They've, they've got the Old Testament testimony already. No, Father Abraham, you don't understand. If someone rises from the dead, they'll believe. And we all see Jesus' resurrection in there, don't we? No, you see, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not even going to believe when I rise from the dead. Now, This isn't an absolute statement, by the way, because we read the book of Acts, and we do find that many of the Pharisees were actually, they, they might have wanted to follow Jesus all along, but they just, they, they, they just didn't do it. But after he's dead, and they realize, he rose, guys, this is, I'm in. But generally speaking, you don't believe the testimony you've been given, I'm not going to give you more. And the point is this, man's, humanity's problem is often not a lack of evidence, but a lack of Will. Most of the time people say, I don't believe in God because. What they don't say, but often mean, and, and be careful about, you know, um, you know, using it this way over someone, but, but generally speaking what's happening is, I don't want to believe in God and then I came up with these reasons as to why that's a good belief. Because if there were a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Yeah, yeah, that may, I can continue on my life now. They were really were on the path of their life that they, as they wanted it to go all along. And they just didn't want to deviate. I, church is the one thing I don't want to do. Religion, I don't want, I don't want that. I don't want, to, I, I don't want to change my ways. So therefore, God doesn't exist because science has proven we don't need God. Therefore, God doesn't exist because if he did, why would he allow Or, or therefore, God knows I'm not a bad person, so I'm probably going to be okay anyways. It's often not a lack of evidence. It's often a lack of will. Now, understand this, okay? And our response to them still needs to be providing them answers. It still needs to be coming alongside them and loving them and, caring them and caring for them and sharing them. And by the way, how could God allow all this evil in the world? The answer is, he allowed it. He didn't cause it. It's our fault. When Adam and Eve ate fruit from the tree and we all agreed with Adam and Eve, hey, good call, good call, chew it, you know, eat more, eat more, we were all in on it. The world as we see it now is a result of that decision and our decisions then. In fact, if God didn't have a hand in the world, it would be a whole lot worse. It's God's grace that sustains this world. But it's also God's love because the loving being says, I love you. And to love you means I'm going to let you make your own decisions. Not a good one, not a good one, not a good one. Oh, not bad. If God didn't love us, he would simply eliminate our, our ability to make decisions all by ourselves uh, right at the moment. And then there would be no evil and no, no crutch, but there would be no love because there would be no opportunity to, 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 to choose. So what's the response? Lord, increase our faith. Because if that offering plate comes by next week and you've resolved over the course of this last week to put more in, you need more faith. Because if you go home and check your budget out, you're probably going to go, there ain't money for our tithe. There ain't money for an offering. There ain't money to give to this ministry. There ain't money to give that ministry. It ain't there. Lord, you're going to have to increase my faith. The only way I can do it is to trust. I'm going to trust. All right. It's all yours. You ask for some of it back. Here it is. You can give online. You can give an offering. But you have to entrust. Let's pray. Father, increase our faith. Because we all recognize that this is not always easy. You came to us and told us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And in that we do try to trust sometimes. If we cast our cares upon you, it's easy. We struggle to do this on our own so much. And so, Lord, to follow you, we need faith. We need to be reminded and shown. and, And maybe for some of us, we need more evidence. We need, to be remind, we, we, need to, we need to step out and take the next 30 or 60 days and put more in the offering plate and then just step back and see what you do with it. Maybe not by multiplying my, my wallet, but maybe by multiplying my faith. Maybe by answering my prayers for more peace, more courage, more patience with my kids, more love towards that person at work. Maybe those are the transformations that we'll see. And then we can look back 60, 90 days later and say, oh, wow. Following you really does make sense. So, Lord, increase our faith. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. We know in just a few chapters we're going to be at the crucifixion of Jesus. What a horrible, horrible, horrible thing it is that we have done to you, but yet what an immensely loving thing you have done for us. So, Lord, increase our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time!